Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Stuart McNish, coming to you from the studios at Oh Boy Productions, specialists in the development of shows just like this one. This week, we take a look at Transport 2050, the long-range transportation plan for Greater Vancouver. TransLink CEO Kevin Desmond joins us in studio for a wide-ranging conversation that will also air on our sister show, Conversations That Matter. Following that conversation with Mr. Desmond, Michael Ferreira of Urban Analytics joins us for his company's latest statistics on condo and planned community development. He's going to let us in on how developers have responded to the plethora of new rules and regulations that were designed to make housing more affordable. But first up, let's go to the interview from Conversations That Matter with TransLink CEO, Kevin Desmond. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for quite some time because I think, you know, it's really easy to overlook the value of the transportation, the overall transportation system and the way that it's all interconnected. We can look at TransLink as being one thing, but it's not isolated because it's part of an overall system. And since you've come here, you've said, okay, it's time for us to sit down and come up with a long-term strategic plan. What is that vision and what do you want from citizens of the area? Well, great question. I don't have the vision. The okay. citizens are going to give us the vision. That's exactly what, what I think we need to do. I could have my own personal point of view. That's my personal point of view. It mm -hmm. might be informed because I happen to be in this business. I happen to be in charge of TransLink. But with our Transport 2050, our, our long-range plan update, we want to hear from everybody. We want to hear the, just the, the absolute multiplicity of ideas. No idea is a bad idea. At the end of the day, we'll filter the ideas through a, both a public engagement process and ultimately with our policymakers on what really is going to make sense for the next 30 years for this region on mobility. Mm -hmm. Mobility kind of writ large. It's not just more rapid transit or more buses, obviously, with the pace of technology change, what's going to happen with, with ride hailing and shared services, what's going to happen with automation, what's going to happen with electrification. So it's an all-in kind of exercise. What we do know is we're forecasting over a million more people here over the next 30 years or so. We do know that there's not going to be a lot of... the whole greater Vancouver yes, area. In yeah. And that's just in our service area, in the TransLink service area. That doesn't even include the Fraser Valley, for example, or up the Cedar Sky Highway, up towards Squamish and Whistler. That's just within oh the current TransLink service area. So what we do know is we're not going to build a lot more roads. 
No. There's not going to be a lot more road capacity. We're very hemmed in. Most of the land is developed in one form or another. doesn't leave a lot of room for building roads. So we've got to maximize the mobility within a capacity that exists today and hopefully build more high-capacity transit in the meantime. But how do we do that when there's already established infrastructure that is like bulging at the seams already? Like how do we find that mix that's going to work and build it and hopefully ultimately maintain it so that it stays there. Uh, you know, uh, two, two answers to that question. One, I'll, I'll use a little jargon, transportation demand management, something, you know, we know. That is jargon, okay. What does it mean? Once, so if you've got, everything's bulging at the seams. You've got, there's only so much capacity within the curbs, or if you include the sidewalks or on the highways and mm -hmm. so forth. So the idea is how do you maximize the ability to move people and goods in that same bit of pavement? So that means more pe people carpooling, for example. Just imagine on the, on the commute on Highway 1 every morning, let's say every single person who drives alone in their car was carpooling with someone else. Simple math, you have half the cars on the road. Mm -hmm. So how do you get more people ride sharing? How do you get more people taking buses, taking high capacity transit? Can we make effective carpool lanes all the way out, you know, on Highway 1 all the way into Vancouver, for example? Um, so on the one hand, you got to manage the demand on your roadways. You mm -hmm. can manage it by, by demand um, incentives or supply incentives. The second piece is, how do we expand our rapid transit system, our high-capacity system? Um, I personally believe, and I, I think you know, most would, would assume, that, we've, that we, that's the quickest and most efficient way to move a lot of people. You're always going to, if you have um, a dedicated, exclusive right-of-way, such as SkyTrain, you can maximize the ability to move people really, really efficiently. Now, it takes a long time to build projects like that, and they cost a lot of money. And mm -hmm. I think that's why we need a lot of public engagement. We want the public, at the end of the day, to feel like they own the plan. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, once the plan is then adopted, we're going to have to go back out to the public and say, okay, this is your plan. Now, how do we, how do we implement it? And implementing it means, among other things, raising the money for whatever the ideas uh, are. Or it could also be regulatory changes, legal um, issues. You know, mm -hmm. How do you sort of think about the world, the, the oncoming world of automated uh, and shared and electric vehicles. There probably are going to be a new regulatory framework to make that work for us. So there's a, uh, I want to go back to the bit about the roadways first, and then we'll come back to expanding resources through uh, transit. Because I think that a lot of people don't understand what the relationship between TransLink is and our roadways. Like when we take a look at the Patello Bridge and what's going to happen there, they don't understand that TransLink is going to play an important role in how that gets played out. And so when you talk about saying, well, how do we create that kind of ride share, which on the top of my head, I think, how do you do that? Especially when we have a culture, I'm sorry, I'm rambling on here, but when we have a culture where people are uh, said, well, I bought a car because it gives me autonomy. Now you're telling me that I'm going to be wedded to somebody else's schedule and I'm going to be driving with them. How do we do that? And how does that fall under the umbrella of what TransLink brings to this overall equation? Well, you know, when TransLink was created 20 years ago, we just turned 20 in, in April, as a matter of well, fact. Well, happy anniversary. Um, <laughs> The, the, the folks that wrote the, the TransLink Act um, had a vision for a singular organization that would not only deliver public transportation services, but would also be the larger go-to planning entity 
and, and I think we need to embrace that role. And, you know, one of the things that the general public probably doesn't know much about, we, we co-manage what we call the major road network. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the roads. So all the arterial, uh, arterial roads in the, in the region, not the major highways, but the arterials, we kind of co-manage it with mm -hmm. the uh, cities. We help fund it. And with that comes certain amount of regulatory authority in terms of goods movement and, and how the, how the um, streets and, and those roads uh, can be changed and adjusted over time. So we can, we can have sort of this umbrella overall view using modeling data, future um, projections and so forth to try to understand how you get the most out of your capacity. How do you create mobility options? We're not all about you must take the bus mm -hmm. or you must take the train. It's how many options can we give you so you have the choice to select the best option for whatever your travel need is. If it's going to work, if it's going to school, if it's going to a show at night on Friday night or something, it, in my ideal world, you have a lot of different choices. And if driving alone in your car or with your, with your family in the car is the best way to get around, ideally a lot of other people are choosing another way to get around so you're not stuck in traffic. Mm -hmm. So in the mix of that, like having control over all of those like arterial road networks, there is the movement of goods and service people to help fuel the economy. When we think of transit, it's usually individuals. We're saying, okay, you make a choice to get on the bus or SkyTrain or CBUS or whatever it is. That's your transportation. You're going to work or for some sort of personal need. This means that your authority also plays an important role in in understanding what the movement of, uh, of goods and services is. And how do we ensure that that can happen efficiently? Because that all goes to the cost of living in the region as well. So we participate in a, in a couple of uh, very important bodies. One is the, the Gateway Council. The Gateway Council, it's, it's the Port of Vancouver, YVR, um, shipping industries, the railroads, uh, the province, uh, and some of the municipalities focused on international trade and goods movement. We created something called the Greater uh, Vancouver Urban Freight Council, uh, which, which translate um, chairs, which is focused on interregional um, goods movement. Part of our mandate at TransLink is the movements of, of goods as well. So, mm -hmm. uh, so the more people that we can get off of driving alone in their cars because we're providing good choices, mm -hmm. the more we can free up road space for uh, moving goods. We believe that the port and all the goods moving in our gateway port here in this region is very, very important and vital uh, for the economic success and prosperity of this region and therefore the quality of life of the region. So we need to partner and join with all the freight uh, movement um, um, interests to understand how we can make sure there's a good balance between moving people and moving goods on our very crowded byways. It's an integrated system. Absolutely. But Part of that is the fact that there's what, 22 different communities that sort of fit within that greater port uh, environment and then the gateway system. Um, how then do you manage those relationships? Because they're changing all the time. You know, new mayors are elected and then they come along and say, I don't want that part of the plan anymore. I want something different. How do you manage that and, and, and with a long-term strategic view? Well, I'll give you a little, it's a, it's a really small example, and it's not something the average citizen's ever going to think about. I didn't think about it before I got here. Each of those 20, the 21 municipalities 21, yes, thank you. could have different 
rules and regulations associated with the weights, the weight and, regula and regulations of trucks within their, their cities. So you could go between Vancouver, Burnaby, New West, and Surrey and have four different regulatory environments for your truck. And you might have, a different, have to get a different permit from all four of those wow. cities, depending on the size and the weight of your truck and whatever goods. So we took the initiative through the Greater, Greater Urban uh, Freight Council to harmonize all the regulations. And, and I hope by the end of the year, we're going to have complete harmonization of all those regulations. Now, how did we pull that off? We got everybody together. We, we understood what a common interest is. Um, and then let's work towards a common interest. It actually isn't very hard to do. The governance of, of TransLink is in part by the Mayor's Council. So mm -hmm. we have all 21 cities uh, and the Tawasin and, and Electoral Area A, so 23 um, entities. They all sit together and we make policy. And we, we work by consensus ultimately so that there's a common approach and a common objective. So yeah, the different cities might different on, differ on various different approaches, but at the end of the day, if we work well together, generate that consensus towards a common objective, prosperity, quality of life, movement of goods and services, you can actually make good things happen. But it, it takes work and it takes a lot of consensus building. So how then do you also work with those 21 different jurisdictions and say, okay, uh, you're planning out your city or your municipality and you need us to provide transit services for those who aren't driving. Um, how do we help you make decisions that are going to reduce the requirement for longer trips uh, and do you play a role in helping to do that kind of planning? Because you can't have constant bus service everywhere. The region's too large. Oh, yeah. Well, so we're, we're right now within the, the second phase of the mayor's 10-year plan. So in uh, November of 2016, uh, the, the Mayor's Council, with a lot of funding from the province and the federal government, started the first phase of the project. And the first phase of the Mayor's vision was fundamentally get a lot more bus service out as fast as possible, get more sea bus service out, get more bus service out, get more handy dart service out, which we did in, in 2017 and 2018. Uh, last summer, almost a year uh, ago, uh, the Mayor's Council and the Board adopted a $7.3 billion, very, very aggressive plan to expand the system that funded the Broadway subway, it funded the light rail project uh, in Surrey, and it funded a multi-year um, uh, program to dramatically increase the capacity by about 40% of the Expo and Millennium Line mm -hmm. um, program by buying more uh, fleet uh, primarily. So we're now funded to about $9 billion of expansion. Um, next year, hopefully around this time next year, our policymakers, I hope, will adopt the, the third and final phase of the 10-year plan. It will complete the south of Fraser, the, the Surrey um, Rapid Transit um, Program, more bus service, and perhaps other projects um, as well. A lot of what we have to do is improve transit service south of the Fraser River. Yes. That's where people are living. Mm -hmm. That's where it's more affordable. That's where we do not have good enough transit service. So we've got to catch up. Vancouver has really good transit service uh, for the most part. New Westminster and Burnaby, abundant transit service. Surrey, Langley, Delta, um, and the Tri-Cities and, and Pitt Meadows and um, uh, Maple Ridge, not so much. So we've got, to, we've got to move as quickly as we're able to to make the right investments to, to catch up for those communities. You know, Surrey in the next couple of decades is going to be the largest city in the region. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of people living there. We need to work with the city to get rapid transit, high-capacity transit, and they've got to figure out their land use planning as well because they've got to figure out ways to densify around the transit assets. I know $9 billion is a lot of money, but is it enough? No. When, no. 
And so then how do we put together the kind of funding model that's going to support this? Because it won't solely come through ridership. I know that there is tax on uh, gasoline consumption and so on. But still, the funding, we need to figure out what that model is to ensure that if we're building this, we don't run into roadblocks to bring it to a halt or prevent us from being able to maintain it. So variety of, of answers to the question. First of all, you need partners. Mm -hmm. First partner is federal government. So the, the uh, Trudeau administration in 2016, right after I got here, so the timing was great, announced their public transportation infrastructure fund, nationwide funding of $22 billion, of which this region got $2.6 billion um, for our funding. It was the first and biggest um, kind of allocation from a systemic uh, uh, standpoint nationwide for public transit over a 10-year period. So we need the federal government in this country, and, and my belief is to have ongoing 10-year programs. Mm -hmm. We need another 10-year program. It's something we're, we're talking to Ottawa about. We're talking to the various different parties about, you know, in the upcoming uh, federal election. You also need the provincial government to continue to be a very, very strong supporter and funding uh, source for the system. So that $9 billion on the capital for the big projects, about 35% of that comes from the federal government, 40% mm -hmm. of that comes from the provincial government, and then the region comes up from the rest. So you've got to have those partnerships. If it was just on the region and collecting resources from the region, we couldn't do it, number one. Number two, we need really, really strong public consensus. And that's why it goes back to 20, uh, and that transport is the key, 2050. Isn't it? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And we need to get out. We need to talk to the public about what are your dreams, what do you want to see happen, and it's sort of what sequence. And then people are going to be much more willing to then fight for the same resources that we're fighting for politically and bureaucratically, because we're all sort of marching to the same tune. Yes, let's get high capacity transit in, in Surrey. Let's figure out how to fund it. And then, yeah, if it takes more tax dollars or more fees. If people know where the money is going, mm -hmm. and if people accept that that is going to be a, a net positive for their life, and even if it's a few years out, you know, my experience, particularly in the Puget Sound, where we go out to referendum all the time for these things, people are willing to say yes. They're willing to, 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 to take that uh, little bit of, um, of hit in their pocketbook because they see something um, positive going forward. It's our job at TransLink and my job as the CEO to make sure that we're transparent and accountable and that we are good to our promises to deliver. And then I think the taxpayer feels pretty good um, and pretty confident that their dollars are being used for a good purpose. But that consensus right. building means a lot of public engagement. And so thus the Transport 2050 program where you are reaching out to people because we've tried to uh, change funding models in the past here and it met with resistance and I think it's for the very reason that you point out there wasn't a clear vision of what am I going to pay for. Um, that, I, that's, I've seen that play out over and over. You know, I'm from the United States and I've, I've been in transit in New York um, and, in, and in this Seattle region. And what I've seen, and with my colleagues elsewhere, if you're, if you're very upfront of what it's going to be used for and, and you're a solid, respected delivery organization, the taxpayer is going to be much more likely to support what you're doing because at the end of the day, nobody wants to sit in traffic. Nobody does. Nobody wants to sit in traffic. Nobody wants to see their free time progressively eaten up by longer and longer commute times. People want solutions. They want answers. Uh, and that's kind of a bipartisan thing. It's mm -hmm. just, hey, it's quality of life. Quality of life is not a, is not a partisan political issue. It's all about, you know, what's, what's going to be good. I go back to that, that, that issue of choice. If you and I have different choices and we can make the choice on how to get, we took the train here. 
mm -hmm. for the for the interview today. It was the most efficient way to get around. I just want to I want yeah. to I want to promote to the general public. Help us figure out the plethora of choices, and then we'll develop a plan that will meet those those various different ideas. The train is incredibly efficient. I used it yesterday to go to a meeting at the Vancouver Sun. Uh, way easier than than driving and far less expensive. The question going forward, I think, for people when they look at, at this initiative, they're going to say, will my voice really matter? Um, like, is this a public relations exercise or does my voice really matter? And how do you give them assurance that, yes, we do want to hear from you because without that, we're not going to be able to make the appropriate planning choices? Um, yes, the public's, uh, the public's voice will matter. As I said it at the outset, no, I, at the start, no idea is a bad idea. One of the cool things on the website, on the T2050, um, Transport 2050 website, is you can post your ideas and people yes, can I basically like yeah. your ideas. And I, I was just looking at, at some of the stuff um, yesterday. There's, you know, the top ideas have 30, 40, 50, 60 likes. Mm -hmm. And actually, none of them are bad ideas. All of them make perfect sense. They, you know, um, um, how do you make buses move faster? Expand the SkyTrain system, you know, of the like. How do you mm -hmm. improve the, the capacity of, of the highways? So we're going we're gonna to pull those ideas and we're going to extract those ideas, get a sense of what's sticking, where, where you know, a lot of people are gravitating to, towards those ideas. The good thing is they don't really diverge a whole lot from what planners at TransLink may think or our, our, our politicians may think. And I, I hope in the final plan, the majority of the public that engages with this will see a plan and they'll go, makes sense. Yeah, because then, as, uh, to your point, they will then get behind it. Yes. Yeah. Because they, the, it yeah. will reflect the, the input that they've offered over a period of time. I, we're not going to have a plan that's developed by, uh, by bureaucrats. We want, we want a plan that ultimately the general public can say, yeah, this is part of the fabric of how we see our community developing over the next couple decades. And so what is the length of time? How long do people have to be able to offer uh, their thoughts and ideas? So we're, gonna, we're doing the, um, uh, the public engagement in three stages. So this is really the big stage we're in right now. Uh, started uh, uh, earlier in May through the end of the summer, through early September. Uh, the website's going to be open. Um, you can, uh, we have a poll, um, some, some um, uh, a survey. You can mm -hmm. answer a bunch of questions. As I mentioned, you can throw out your own um, ideas. We're going to be out in as many community forums for face-to-face -face contact as much as we can. We'll get most of the input, I'm sure, online, but that face-to-face -face contact is absolutely invaluable. So we're going to be as many community events this summer as we possibly can. We'll then um, pull all that information together in the fall. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll see how to, how to assemble it, how it makes sense. We'll work with policymakers. We'll then assemble it into sort of a first cut. Here's some ideas based on what we heard. And then early next year, we'll do a second round of, of public engagement. Mm. Okay, how do we, how, how, how's it looking? You know, this is what we heard. How do you want to further shape it? And we'll do a final round of public engagement uh, probably in the third quarter of next year before we finalize the plan. So the public will have three chances to right. weigh in. Yeah. The final chance will be, here's kind of the draft final document. Here's a final chance to help shape it. Well, without effective transportation, we're, built, we're blocking ourselves in, and that's the last thing we want. Thank you very much for coming okay. and sharing. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Joining me now is Michael Ferreira of Urban Analytics. Michael? Welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. You came and saw us in January and you gave us a picture of what it looked like through last fall. Um, we're now really starting to see the impact of uh, 
I guess, legislation that has said, we're going to change the landscape a bit. Mm -hmm. What's happened? How's it changed? Um, well, I, you know, I think the legislation has had an impact on the market in a couple of different ways. I think first and foremost, uh, from a buyer uh, sentiment perspective, when you have a government that comes in and states that we're going to introduce policy to try and slow the market down and bring prices down. Uh, I think the natural reaction for anybody in the market, whether you're an investor, whether you're an end user, is to take a step back mm -hmm. and see what happens. And I think to a large extent, uh, that's what's happening today, is that we're still hearing from um, you know, presentation centers and whether it's a condo or townhome development that our analysts go and visit uh, personally to collect data from, uh, that they're still seeing good interest. They're still seeing good traffic. Um, you know, we just got an email yesterday from a project that just launched in Surrey that's, you know, more price sensitive, uh, entry level oriented, and they've done 50 sales in, in their opening in the first couple of weeks since their opening. So that's good. That's really good. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it, it reflects that there's still demand in the market for the right product at the right price, but, um, there's still, a lot of uh, potential buyers or prospective buyers sitting on the sidelines just waiting to see what happens and primarily on the investment side and in the high-rise condo sector. And they're sitting on that on the sidelines because there isn't the same urgency to, to act now for fear that the price is going to get away from you. Correct. Yeah. And, and the, you know, this is the, you know, that's the reason for the argument that we were making prior to these current policies that got brought in that it shouldn't just be about demand that we also need to address supply and we still maintain that we need to address supply um, you know as the market softened and uh, sales slowed a bit we've seen an increase in inventories not huge we're still you know well below the highs that we saw in 2012 and 2013 um, but we're starting to see a little bit more competition a little more competitive supply with projects uh, more projects competing against one another and that has an impact on urgency because all of a sudden buyers recognize that they don't have to make a buying decision the first time they visit a sales center. They can go and, and look at other projects that are in that market, uh, compare what the offering is, make sure the, the product is right for what they're looking for and, and for their situation, and then make a decision. So, you know, we're hearing, uh, you know, instead of buyers coming in and, and maybe making a, a purchase on your first visit, it's taking three or four visits. So it could take three weeks, a month before, you know, if somebody's actively looking to purchase a new home, it could take them that three weeks to a month to make that decision. That's better for the buyer though, Absolutely. isn't it? Because yeah. they're then making a, a more informed decision. Yeah. But how is that affecting uh, the behavior and the plans of the people who are putting these projects together? Um, so on if you've got a project that's targeting an end user buyer, so primarily you would say that's a townhome project, uh, four story, six story wood frame project, um, those uh, builders are just really adjusting uh, their pricing, their offering a little bit, and knowing that there's more competition in the market and they have to really try to differentiate themselves from uh, other similar projects in the market that they're competing with. Um, they're trying to do that primarily through the offering of incentives, uh, maybe some unique marketing program uh, that tries to get the attention of, of people who are out there looking. Um, so uh, again, you know, while 
prices are still high relative to what they were 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to what they've been over the past three or four years, it's probably the best time to purchase in terms of getting a better price. You're paying less today than you would have paid this time last year. Uh, you add on to that some of the incentives that uh, that are being offered at various projects. That brings the prices down even further. Uh, and again, just the fact that you've got more choice, more time to make your decision. It's actually a decent time to buy if you can afford it and it makes sense in terms of your own personal situation. So what sector is being impacted the most? Is it the high-rise condo section sector or is it, as you point out, like in Surrey, maybe you have the two-story two uh, townhome wooden yeah. construction community style. Uh, where are we seeing the impact of this shift in the market the most? Yeah, so on the end user and um, the end user sector of the market, it's being impacted in the sense that developers have had to adjust their approach, their pricing, offer some incentives, but they're still seeing sales, they're still seeing strong demand. Where it's impacted the market the most is in the high-rise sector, and, um, you know, again, uh, that sector of the market needs to have some investor participation in it to make it go. Uh, And a big reason for that is uh, the Real Estate Development Marketing Act, which requires that developers uh, um, file an amendment to the disclosure statement that buyers get when they purchase a home, stating that they've obtained financing for the construction of the project within nine months of the filing of that disclosure statement, or Mm -hmm. essentially within nine months of when they're allowed to start selling. So can can I just ask for a clarification on a point? Because some people go, oh, well, you know, this is all designed to be a benefit to the developer, but actually it's protection for the buyer, isn't it? Absolutely. If you, um, you know, some people might have read in the news about projects getting canceled in Ontario, right? and they don't have any such protection there. So in Ontario, if you can believe it, you can sell today without having final approval on your project, uh, collect deposit monies that you can hold for as long as you want, uh, and then go and take the time that it it takes to get your final approval. Mm -hmm. So I read about a project last week uh, that sold in 2016, I believe, and still hasn't put a shovel in the ground because they're waiting for... Um, they're waiting for the final approval. So all those buyers are sitting with their investment held in trust. Yeah. Uh, it is held in trust at yes. least, yeah. but they don't have access to it. They can't get out of the deal. No. Like they're stuck based on the developer's ability to attract new buyers. Correct. And, and the same exists in Alberta where you can purchase a unit, put a deposit down, and then the developer can market the project for two or three years until he feels comfortable. He's got his pre-sale requirement to get his construction financing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if he doesn't get it, then he cancels it. Well, meanwhile, you may have lost out on an opportunity to purchase that another project because your deposit monies are tied up. So it's actually a great thing and a great protection for buyers here. Right. The challenge, and it's you know never a problem when the market has been as hot as it has been. Right? Just keeps so, cranking through. Yeah, yeah. so no problem getting, getting yeah. the, your pre-sales in, in nine months. But when the market softens, it creates a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, a developer doesn't want to launch a project uh, unless he's got some certainty that 
uh, he or she, unless they have some certainty that they can achieve those pre-sales that their construction lender requires mm-hmm. within those nine months. So how do they do that now when there's a more competitive market and there aren't quite as many buyers? Uh, do they have to be more strategic about their timing, about putting their project out into the marketplace? Yes, they have to uh, ensure that it's positioned better. So pricing is uh, you know more appropriate to what the market is, is looking for. Um, or what the market thinks, uh, buyers think the market is at today. Um, and in, in some cases, they just postpone because uh, if they have to bring their prices down to a point where, um, you know, the, the, the financial viability of the project no longer makes sense, then they just put the project on the shelf because they may have purchased the land within the last two or three years when land prices have been at their highest. We haven't seen construction costs drop at any uh, by any significant amount. So there's a bit of a, a challenge there where they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they can't make the numbers work right now. So, so, so should we look at postponement as canceling of a, of a project? Because we're studying here, oh, developers are canceling these projects. Do you actually see that happening or is postponing really just waiting? It's just waiting. Yeah, they, they won't cancel a project outright. Um, you know, canceling is, you know, you launch a project, things don't work out, you cancel it. And you sell uh, off. And you maybe sell the land off. Yeah. So we're not seeing that where projects that are, you know, approved, ready to go, um, are... Uh, are, are being canceled altogether and the land being sold. So the landscape right now would reflect what would have been a more traditional marketplace anyways, wouldn't it? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, what I think some would argue is perhaps that nine-month window could be 12 or 15 months mm-hmm. um, to allow developers to obtain their their required pre-sales to obtain their construction financing. Uh, and, and just to clarify on um, the challenge that developers could have, they could always extend that nine months. Mm-hmm. The challenge is in order to do that, you need to file an amendment to the disclosure statement, which opens up all of the existing contracts that you have um, so far. So say if they've got, you know, they require to get to 70% uh, sales in their project to hit their pre-sale target, they're at 55 so it's a significant number of sales that they've got. If the market has dropped in any way between the time they launched and the time they're and and the nine months, there's a fear that a lot of those buyers will say, "Well, I'm going to get my money back and move on and, mm-hmm. and take advantage of the lower market." So, so that's something that obviously developers want to try to avoid. Um, so the other issue that we see that. Uh, with the nine month is it puts so much pressure on developers to get that sales momentum to reach those pre-sales that they go chasing after the low hanging fruit, which is typically, you know, those VIP realtors uh, who have their, their investor clients who come in and buy blocks of units just to help the developer get to that. If you lengthen that period by three, six months, it takes a little bit of that pressure off and perhaps they're not chasing those, uh, those VIP realtors and then you allow the, the true buyer who might actually end up living in the unit or wants to hold on to it for rental purposes uh, into those projects a little more easily and, and you know, gives them a little bit fairer chance at, at getting into those projects. Well, are we hearing any talk of anybody on the legislative side of the equation saying, yeah, okay, that's a good idea, it makes sense, or is this wishful thinking? Uh, I think at this point it's wishful thinking. I think 
Um, you know, in many cases, I think the government is probably seeing that the policies they've introduced are working. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge that we see is if we continue to see some of these larger, more comprehensive projects postponed uh, indefinitely in some cases, that once the market does start to pick back up again, that you know, we're going to be in a supply shortage situation and, and the whole cycle starts all over again. Well, and that's the tricky bit, isn't yes. it? Where do you yeah. find that sweet spot so that you're meeting the needs of the market, you're making housing affordable, and yet yeah. <laughs> the only way that it's affordable is if you have the appropriate supply. It's not an unusual response from a developer to say, okay, well, I'm going to take a wait-and-see approach right now, but the consequences of that are that we could very easily be back into the cycle that we've experienced. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's only prudent for them to do it when you have, you know, tens of millions of dollars at stake on one You'd of these, that. these projects. I think anybody in their shoes would do the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So would you say that we're uh, officially in a, in a pause, or is this just a transition period from what was an overheated market, which I think everybody would agree, to a more normal market. Yeah, I, th I would say it's the latter, that we're in this transition period right now. And, it, you know, buyer psychology is a really tricky thing to try to read. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, of course, are in the data business. We collect data and are looking at it and trying to identify trends all the time. The one thing you can't predict is how buyers are going to react. So it's that part of it is always a bit of a guessing game. Mm -hmm. uh, my guess right now is that... Um, you know, you see the MLS stats come out on a monthly basis. They're being compared year over year to the first half of 2018 at this point, which was still relatively strong. It really yeah. wasn't until the, the la last five, six months of, of 2018 that we started to see uh, the numbers slide. Um, so while we're still comparing year over year to last year, we're still going to be seeing these reports of these massive drops in sales, uh, drops in prices. And, you know, as long as that's occurring, buyers are just going to stay on the sidelines and say, well, okay, well, let's see how far this goes. Yeah. Um, I, what'll be interesting to see is what happens as we get into the second half of the year and we start comparing those stats year over year more on an apples to apples comparison where you're you're comparing to conditions that were more similar last year as they are this year mm -hmm. uh, i think once we see the market see a few months of stable numbers coming out so the comparisons are still fairly similar um that some in the market may say okay well uh, looks like things have have stabilized if they're in a position to buy and, and there's still good mm -hmm. opportunities out there, maybe then they start getting back into the market. Well, so. and then we'll know whether or not we're, we've leveled out and, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for coming in and sharing this. My it's, pleasure. I, I think it's important insight. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. That wraps up today's show. Thank you for tuning in on Apple Podcasts, thevancouversun.com, and theprovince.com, and on the Vancouver Sun's YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe, because you won't want to miss an episode. And as well, I want to acknowledge Arnold Cheng, Greta Gibson, and Derek Hader, without whom this show would not be possible. What a great team I get to work with. I'm Stuart McNish. Thanks for joining us on Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. See you next time. Mm -hmm.